Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. It always works better when I turn the power on. Yes. Good morning, church family. Out of curiosity, do we have any daredevils in the room? Or at least growing up, you just love to do dumb stuff? I mean dangerous stuff? Well, many of you know I grew up, born and raised in San Diego, and in the suburb that I grew up in, in the town of Ramona, there was one famous hill that teenagers tried to conquer. Uh, I was one of them. It was just simply known as Fifth Street. And it was steep, and it was long, and we tried to conquer it in many different ways. We tried everything from rollerblades to skateboards to bikes, but my personal favorite, abandoned shopping carts. (laughs) So I had many a day where I ended up in an emergency room, no joke, from trying to ride a shopping cart down Fifth Street. And we were dumb enough to do it multiple times. So everything from like stitches in the chin to rocks getting stuck in your hands to a chipped elbow to one day when I crashed at the bottom, I went to stand up and noticed something wasn't quite right, and my right kneecap was not where it was supposed to be. So that was awesome, too. Well, it taught me kind of a neat spiritual parallel. It's a lot like sin. It's quite a slippery slope. Once it gets momentum, the inevitable result is almost never good. In fact, it is never good. We dive headlong into certain things that they seem like a ton of fun at the time. I mean, don't get me wrong, the ride on the way down the hill was great. It's just that the end result was almost never good, and yet we did it over and over again. Well, we're going to take a look at a church in Pergamum that allowed sin to get some momentum going in its church. And rather than dealing with the sin, rather than dealing with the heresy, in order to just simply keep the peace, they kept their mouth shut. And that ended up costing them quite a bit. Dealing with sin in the church is never fun. However, not dealing with it is even less fun when the end result takes place. So, we are at the church in Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was one of those places that was quite fascinating to study and learn about. They had a library uh, that was huge. In fact, it had 200,000 volumes uh, within it. It was there that the idea of parchment came about, which parchment was just writing on animal skins. Um, It was also a city that was the center of idolatry. In fact, we're about to read about it, but Jesus calls it the place where Satan dwells, and he calls it Satan's throne. And I believe one of the reasons is they built uh, more temples to false gods than just about any other city of that time. They had four that were huge. One was a temple that was built to Zeus. Uh, One was a temple that was built to the goddess uh, Dionysius. The other one was to Athena, And then the last one was to Asclepius. And now you can understand why Jesus said, this is the place where Satan's throne was at. Well, they got mail. And as we've been discussing, we've got mail. So although this is a letter to the church in Pergamum, uh, this is also a letter to the church in Albuquerque. Much for us to learn. So we're about to receive some mail. We're getting some mail from the king. Would you all mind just standing with me as we read our mail uh, from the king? And as soon as I'm done reading the mail... Um, you can go ahead and sit right back down. So, what do we get from Jesus today? He says, To the angel in the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, 
And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of, sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Gang, you can have a seat. Thanks. So we have got a fairly decent-sized letter to this church in Pergamum. And the one thing that we see from reading these five or six verses is that this is a church that compromised in its convictions. And the church that compromises is destined for demise. We're destined to go down. And in fact, we're going to learn this about the church in Pergamum. Did they ever fully repent and did they ever fully turn around and follow the Lord? We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that, again, these seven churches are in the area of Turkey. And in fact, again, I think you'll see on our map that's going to pop up here, and you're also going to see, uh, there's a map in your notes, so when you walk through the door, if you grab one of those bulletins on the inside of the bulletin, uh, you can take a look at the map of those seven churches as well. But this church particular in Pergamum was one that compromised in many of its convictions. So again, if you're seeing the map up there, remember we're tracing actually seven literal churches. We started with Ephesus. Last week we were in Smyrna, which is only one of two churches that don't have any uh, criticisms against it. Uh, sorry, we hit Pergamos, Pergamos last week, uh, or we're in Pergamos this week. And then you're going to see that we're going to go to Thyatira, on down to Sardis, into Philadelphia, which is one of the only other two churches that gets no criticisms and then we'll finish with Laodicea. So we are literally traveling that postal route that John would have went if he was delivering letters to those seven churches. And this church in particular in Pergamos or Pergamum is the church that is really compromising in its convictions because it was much easier to just stay quiet. But again, as we'll see, it will lead to its demise. As we trace all seven churches, we're taking a look at five things uh, each week. Same five things each week. We're taking a look at the character of Christ. And why does Christ tell that particular church about that particular portion of his character? We're going to take a look at the commendation that Jesus has for each church. As any good father does when he's going to discipline his son or daughter, he starts with the positive. And so Jesus will start with the positive from his church before he moves into the criticism. Here's where we may be erring. Here's where we could improve. Um, here's where there may be some sin that we have allowed to take a foothold in our church. And then he gives a challenge based off the criticism. Here's the challenge for change. And then lastly, he finishes with counsel. And the counsel is always in the positive. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because if you do these things, here is the blessing that's coming your way. Okay, there's our five-fold breakdown for each church. This week, the church in Pergamum or Pergamos. Back to verse 12. If you take a look there with me. The first thing he says is to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember, every letter starts with some type of character quality that we find in Christ. Why? Because Jesus is what is of utmost importance. 
Jesus is what Scripture is all about. And so these seven churches get reminded of that over and over. Here, the character of Christ that gets depicted speaks of his sovereign authority over all things. Jesus speaks of his sovereign authority over all things. You may be wondering, Pastor, how did you get that out of that passage? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In the Greek, that word that's being used there is the word rumphia. Rumphia was a large sword that Roman officers would carry or a Roman proconsul would carry to carry forth execution or the slaying of somebody that had committed crime. And it was also symbolizing that they carried the sovereign authority of that time. Jesus says through that depiction of himself, I am the one who has sovereign authority. I am the one who ultimately will execute judgment over all things. It's also stated that this sword is double-edged. It doesn't have any dull point at all. So Jesus comes and he's got no dull point. In other words, he's perfect all the way around. He is the one who's going to divide good and he's going to divide evil. And this would have been particularly significant for that church in Pergamos or in Pergamum because they had so much idolatry and so much immorality running rampant that Jesus said, you've got to do something about the sin in the church or else I will come and do something about it for you. We live in a time where sin is creeping more and more into the church. False doctrine is creeping more and more into the church. And the more you have men that stand in the pulpit that say something about that, the more you're going to see people begin to flee. Eventually, I think we may even get to the point where you become the minority, even in the church, for when you stand for what is true and what is right. I, again, gang, I'm just the messenger. But Scripture tells us very clearly, so this is not coming from Dave, this is coming from the Lord himself, that more and more, the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more apostasy, which the word apostasy actually means departure from the truth, the more departure from the truth will even happen in the church. There will become churches and whole denominations that will depart from the truth because it is now culturally faux pas. There's too much of a fear of stepping on too many people's toes. I think that I have reminded you of this, and I will just say it again, that we will always preach the truth from this pulpit in this church, always, regardless of who it offends, but not to be an offensive jerk. That's not our point. The point is never to stand up here and tell people that they are so condemned they have no hope. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When we stand up here and we stand for truth and we say that this is the way God designed the world, this is the way he designed human flourishing, we don't do it to win arguments. We do it to win souls for Christ. And Jesus didn't have a problem preaching the truth. Do you know what happened when Jesus preached the truth? What happened to Jesus when he preached the truth? He went to the cross. What might happen to some of us sitting in this very building when we go out to preach the truth? You yourself might face persecution, maybe not a literal crucifixion, but persecution. And you could very well end up losing your life for preaching the truth of the gospel. That day, that time might come. And the reason that I bring that up is that it's good for us right here, right now, to make that resolve and make that decision that if the time came, where somebody looked at us and said, hey, you follower of Jesus from New Covenant Church, if you don't knock it off, we'll take you out. What response would we give? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm ready. I'm ready. I don't, I don't necessarily have a death wish, but I'm ready 
to go be with Jesus. I can't wait. Now, again, I'm still one of those wussies that just, I'm so ready for the rapture. Just if I don't have to die and the Lord wants to rapture me out of here, I'm just super happy about that. And we just sang a, a song, Even So Come, Lord Jesus Come. He is coming. We don't know when, but we know that He is coming. Could it be before this service is over? Absolutely. And if it is, how do we want him to find us? Well, I will tell you how I want him to find me. I want him to find me standing for the truth regardless of what it costs. And that's a message to the church in Pergamum. In fact, take a look with me if you would at verse 13. In Revelation 2 verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell. Listen to that. Jesus knows where you're at. He knows that things are tough. He knows that living life in Albuquerque or in New Mexico could be hard. He knows about our brothers and sisters living down in Mexico. He knows about our brothers and sisters living down in South America. He knows about our brothers and sisters living in the Middle East where it has become illegal to carry a Bible or preach the gospel. I have brothers and sisters that live in China where it is illegal to preach and teach the gospel. And he says, I know where you dwell. He said, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So here's the commendation from Christ. It's for their faithfulness to him, despite the evil that goes on around them. Now, there's been a lot of theory and speculation about what is meant when it says where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. I'm going to do my very best to just let Scripture speak for itself. First of all, the Scriptures tell us that this world is Satan's. He's the power of the Prince of the Air. Now, no, God owns it. He's in charge. It's interesting to hear very smart people say, you know, the devil, he, he's, he still belongs to God. He can only do what the Lord allows him to do. We seem to think that Satan is like this red devil with a pitchfork who's reigning and ruling in hell. Did you know that Satan doesn't reign and rule in hell? He is going to be just as bound as all of the other demons to the lake of fire when Jesus casts forth his final judgment. He is not reigning and ruling anything. But right now, God has allowed him to run rampant on the earth. And he's only going to put up with it for so long. But right now, he's got this free reign. And with his free reign, he's got a tactic that he's using. He's doing the same thing now that he did all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And he's appealing to people's pride and he did it in Pergamum. Why should you have to worship the one true God? Worship whoever you want. You want to worship the emperor because of what he can bring you? Worship that emperor. You want to worship a God that you formed and you fashioned in your own mind and with your own hands? Worship that God. But Jesus says, I commend you for not. I commend you for understanding who the God of the universe is. And then he uses the word hold fast. You hold fast to my name. It's that Greek word krakateo. It literally means to grasp forcefully. I'm not letting go. If you want to pull me away from it, it's going to be over my dead body. I'm going to be kicking and screaming in the process. So they wouldn't let go of their faith. And he uses one man as an example. His name is Antipas. If you don't know what the name Antipas means, and I don't know if that was his real name or not. I don't know if that was a surname or a nickname. But Antipas literally means against all or against everything. Anti-against Pas means all or everything. Antipas was against anything and everything that stood against Jesus. If you want to, to teach or preach anything against my Jesus, I'm going to stand against that because my Jesus is the king and it costs Antipas his life. We have to go back in the books of history to learn a little bit about Antipas, but he was a man who was told, you are going to give, 
um, homage to the emperor. You're going to bow down and you're going to worship the emperor, and you're also going to commit a sacrifice on behalf of your worship to the emperor. Antipas said, absolutely not. Jesus is the only one that I will ever bow to. And because of the fact that he didn't, they created and crafted this uh, metal brazen bowl that was hollow on the inside, and they put him inside of it, and then they boiled him inside of this brazen bowl. Can you imagine? I don't even like getting a burn on my hand from the stove, and yet he was put inside of this metal bowl, and then he was, this, it was a carving of a bowl, and then they, they literally fried him to death, and all the while he wouldn't abandon his faith in Jesus. But listen to what this says. He's called Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. That term that Antipas gets, faithful witness, is hugely important because there's only one other person that gets the title faithful witness in Scripture. It's Jesus himself. It's found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and then it's found later in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus is called the faithful witness. Antipas is so faithful to the Lord that he gets a title that's even given to Jesus. How awesome would that be? That someday you get given a name or you get given a title that's synonymous with one that that is of, of Jesus? Now, Antipas is not Jesus, and they're not saying that he's a god, but he's being given a title that identifies himself with the creator of the universe who stepped into creation. How cool would that be? I'd love to have that name. You, you get given a name that is synonymous with the creator of the universe. Well, he goes on, and it takes a little bit of a turn in verse 14, where all of a sudden Jesus goes from, Antipas was awesome, and so are some of you, but there's a bunch of you that need to get some things right. And here it is. But I have a few things against you. Okay, stop there for a minute. Remember in Ephesus, he said, but I have this against you? Now it's Pergamum, but I have a few things against you. I'm thinking, oh boy. If Jesus looks at me and says, I got a few things against you, I don't care how manly you are, I don't care who you could take down, I don't care how many bulls you've wrestled or how many fights you've won. If Jesus looks at you and says, I got a few things against you, and I'm about to war against you with the sword of my mouth, we should be a little nervous. Just a little. I think I mentioned it last week, but there has become this lack of reverence for who God is even in the church today. And we try to make Jesus hip and relevant and cool and Jesus is my homeboy. And that's not who Jesus is. He's the creator of the universe. What's really amazing about God's word is that, did you know as your pastor, I don't have to try to make God's word relevant? It is. I have to work to make it relevant. As a side note, if you're working really hard to try to be cool, you're just not. So just stop. Just preach Jesus. Jesus, and not, again, not for a lack of reverence or anything, but Jesus is awesome. And Jesus really is cool. If you want to meet somebody that is a man's man, the manliest of men, one who we can actually use the word of being awesome, it's Jesus. I can't wait to see him more fully in his glory when we get to heaven. And I don't know what we're going to say. I think we're just going to fall down on our face in worship but Jesus is pretty amazing. I don't have to try to make him relevant, hip, or cool. So he has this criticism. He says, but I have a few things against you. 
You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And so you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So two different things that he has against them that we're going to go ahead and take a look at. The first is about Balaam. Now the story of Balaam is found in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. I would encourage you, go back and check that out, but Numbers chapters 22, 23, and 24 speak of this event where Balaam is a prophet in Israel. But he uses his gift and prostitutes it out for money. Hey, God gave me this gift. Now I'm going to use it. and I'm going to make some money off of it. This is running rampant with TV preachers who get up there and God gifted them. He gave them this great gift of communication. They're really good communicators. I don't deny that about a lot of these folks that stand in the pulpit. The problem is what they're communicating, especially when they're doing it for selfish gain and making money. If anybody ever stands in front of you and says, if you just give this much money to my ministry or to me, you'll get healed, run for the hills. God has never spoken that way. It's about His glory, not about some man. So Balaam starts to use his gift to make some money. And during the time of Israel's wandering while they're going through the desert, God's people had defeated a group called the Ammonites. They should have never won this war. The Ammonites were much bigger. They were outnumbered by like 10 to 1, and yet God secures this victory. And then the next thing you know, they turn their sights on Moab. Well, Balak is the king of Moab, and he knows that he's in a lot of trouble. So he hires out Balaam. He says, hey, Balaam, go put a curse on Israel. I'll pay you good money. I'll make it worth your while. Well, Balaam tries three times to put a curse on Israel, and all three times it backfires, and God ends up blessing him. And Balaam's like, well, I want to make some money. I've got to figure out something. He goes, i got an idea. And he comes up with this ingenious plan. Hey, King Balak, go and put the prettiest women that you've got naked in front of all of the soldiers of Israel. And you watch, men cannot hold back from lust. Well, lo and behold, it works. These soldiers from Israel's army see these pretty women unclothed, and they go and begin to engage in these sexual orgies while sacrificing and eating food that was sacrificed to idols. And because of that, God punishes the nation of Israel, and he slays 24,000 Israelite male soldiers. So what Balaam couldn't do to harm Israel, sin did. And man, what a lesson for us. That sin, when it gets a foothold, once that momentum going down 5th Street begins, we got to watch out. Somebody's got to jump in the way and put a stop to it. Well, then there's another teaching. He says, you've also tolerated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitan or, or Nicholas actually means one who conquers the people. So how did Nicholas conquer the people? From what we know, it was extremely deceptively. If you've ever heard of the early church father Irenaeus, Irenaeus wrote about Nicholas. And what he records for us again in the early days of the church is that back around the time of Acts chapter 6, uh, this man Nicholas became one of the deacons in the church. And he slowly but surely introduced different doctrines into the church that were dragging people away. 
And he began to teach them, hey, you know what, if you want to get involved in you know, a little bit of sexual immorality here on the side or a little fornication over here, it's no big deal. It's not really going to hurt anything. Well, eventually they got so bad that another early church father, Clement of Alexander, made this statement. He said those Nicolaitans, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. They were using God's grace as an excuse and a license to sin. And there was something that needed to be done about it. Again, let us remind ourselves that if we let sin run rampant in the church, we're going to head, head ourselves into a lot of trouble. And there will be no peace. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 said that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's amazing how fast a little bit of sin or a little bit of false doctrine can infiltrate the entire church. Gang, I told you before, but it's happening in entire denominations right now where, where entire denominations are abandoning the truth of God's word for the sake of acquiescing to culture. We've got entire denominations that will no longer call certain sins sin or are allowing certain doctrines to run rampant. Listen, you have a group of people right now that we call elders and deacons that have a really hard job. It's hard because as we want to shepherd and shepherd well, we have the great privilege of getting to carry the staff that we've talked about before, which get to help guide and lead the church. But then carrying the rod is the hard part because sometimes we have to beat off wolves and make sure there aren't certain things that creep into the church. I am so thankful right now that we got a group of people, we got a bunch of ladies that are leading other ladies in Bible studies that will oftentimes come to me and say, Pastor, will you take a look at this and just see if this just, is this right doctrinally? I don't know everything. I'm not the boss of the world. I don't know all the answers. But man, am I, I'm sure am thankful that we have those that are willing to come and ask our elders, hey, based off what you see, is this doctrinally sound? It's always hard at times to look at somebody and say, I know you really like that teacher and I, really, I know you like the way they speak. However, they are beginning to introduce doctrines and they are beginning to introduce themes that are not in line with what God's Word has taught biblically. I bring that up because I want this church body to be abundantly clear that you have uh, a bunch of leaders in this building that love you and want the very best for you. And so if any one of us were to ever call out something as heretical uh, or, or something apostate, know that it is done because we care way more about God's glory and the good of his local church than we do do about people's feelings. We have to be at that point or else we're going to don't, don't get me wrong, we care about your feelings. We love you. Again, we're not trying to just be a jerk. However, I have to care more about your eternal soul and what it is that you're being fed and what you're learning than about how we feel about certain folks and about certain individuals. Well, when sin creeps into the church, what do we do about it? This part sounds harsh, so I'm going to let the Apostle Paul speak to it. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to note that while you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, know that 1 Corinthians is a letter that's a correction letter that Paul is writing to believers. And this is a church that is an absolute mess. They have allowed not just one or two sins, but, but a plethora of sins to just run rampant in the church. And Paul says, guys, you are in a lot of trouble. 
We have got to get some things corrected. We've got to do a course correction or else this church is headed for the rocks which is going to rip a hole in the bottom of the boat and you're going to sink quick. So what do we do about sin? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, he says, I write to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So in dealing with sin, we got to be swift, and we got to be severe. Oh, those just sound harsh. But I'm telling you that as a human being, if we don't give ourselves a reason to change, we don't. We just go right back into it. I mentioned to you all last week that I'm raising two teenage girls. And we have been blessed with two girls that love the Lord Jesus, but they're still sinners. So they've had their issues in life before. And when dad gets angry, they get a little bit nervous. Dad, it's kind of scary when you're angry. Good! I don't want you to run down the road singing won't you be my neighbor while you're in sin and dad's yelling at you that's not the way it's supposed to be. you should be a little bit nervous did i get any amens from the dads in the group that's the way it's supposed to be your sons and your daughters should be at least a little bit nervous when mom says wait until i tell your dad what you've done that's a good thing we should have a little healthy reverent fear for the lord when we're sinning against him. Okay, so when we deal with sin in the church, because I don't want dad to come home and have to punish me for it, let's take care of it on our own. Well, that criticism leads to a challenge. Are we going to deal with it? So verse 16 says, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's the challenge to to the church in Pergamum. Repent of your apathy towards sin. What does it mean to be apathetic towards sin? It's to look at it and go, it's really not that big of a deal. Or, if I say something, they might get upset and leave. Which is better? For a person to stay and to continue in their sin? Or to be convicted and maybe leave for a little while? Okay, that's a tough one for me in particular because I'm a pastor. We're supposed to be all about how big is your church, right? Put put five pastors in a room together. They shake hands. Hey, I'm Dave. Hey, I'm Bob. Good to meet you. And what's usually the second thing that they say outside of of what's your name? How big is your congregation? That, frankly, who cares? It depends on where you're at. You might be in a season, and I think right now we're in a season where the Lord is bringing us a lot of new faces, and that's amazing, and that's a blessing, and that's great, especially when it's new faces because people are coming to know Jesus, and new covenant church followers of Jesus are sharing the gospel. That's amazing. But are we going to go through a time where our church declines? Well, if we didn't learn anything from COVID, I hope that we learn something real quick. There are seasons where God prunes his church. 
And that's okay. Because if we get to a point where we're doing whatever it takes just to make sure that people stay, remember, again, something else, a good lesson to be learned. If the entire world is happy with you, what follows? God probably isn't. So there are going to be days and times in our lives where we have to be okay with the world not being happy with us. Will we repent of our apathy towards sin? Hey gang, I will make you a promise. I can't make a lot of them, but this one I can because God is the one who makes it. I'm going to make you a promise. If you glorify and you honor the Lord, you will be blessed as a result. Now I want to make sure I'm super clear on what that means. That doesn't mean you're going to inherit money. That doesn't mean you're going to get a nicer car. It doesn't mean you're going to get a bigger house. It doesn't mean you're going to get better health. In fact, following Jesus might, might mean your house takes a dump and it comes crashing down. It might mean that your car breaks down. It might mean that your health comes under attack. It might mean that you lose finances for following Jesus because you might lose a job. Then how in the world can we make a promise and a guarantee that you will be blessed if you glorify and you honor the Lord? Well, Jesus made a very interesting comment in the Gospels. If you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, all other things will be added unto you. Well, what does that mean? Because again, that, does that mean I'm going to get earthly and temporal pleasures and gifts? doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is that you're going to get gifts and you're going to get treasures where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Those are going to be far better gifts than anything that you could ever get here on this planet. Can't wait for those. Here's the last thing. I love it. I love that Jesus always ends with the positive. We get to walk out of here with our heads held high knowing, yes, there might be some things in our church that we need to deal with, but if we deal with them, here is a promise that we get. Listen to this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He finishes that way with every single one of them. I love it. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's the counsel that Jesus gives? Well, it's to heed that challenge to deal with sin, and if you do, you will receive God's food and God's fellowship. Now, don't miss this. The two are pretty intricately related. We don't think a lot about this living in America because we live in times of fast food, quick meals, get on with it, let's move on. But in their day and age, you sit down and you have table fellowship with somebody, you have food with somebody, that is a sign and a symbol of intimacy, saying that I am welcoming you into my home, that I appreciate who you are. God says, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. Now, I wish we had way more time together to dive into what all of this means, but I'm going to give you the fly-by version of what that hidden manna is that he's talking about. Remember, manna was a flaky bread-like substance. It literally meant, what is it? The Israelites didn't really know what it was, but they're out in the desert. They're about to die of starvation. God says, I'll take care of you, and he gives them manna. They don't even know what it is, but they start eating it, and it sustains them. According to Exodus chapter 16 Verse 33, after this manna came down, they kept some in a jar and they placed it in the Ark of the Covenant. That was that hidden manna that reminded them that God had taken care of them. Well, y'all remember when Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter 6, he calls himself something. I am the 
bread of life. I am that hidden manna that was placed inside the ark. That very thing that you've been waiting to have revealed, that veil being taken off, here I am. That very thing that sustained you in the desert, physically, here I am to sustain you for all of eternity, spiritually. And then there's that white stone with a new name written on it. In order to know what that means, again, we've got to dive a little bit into history, but there was a Roman custom of awarding somebody a white stone when they were victorious in an athletic contest. And that white stone, when your name got put on it, served as your ticket to a special awards banquet. Now, I want to make sure that we're clear that you are going to be given a white stone with a new name that nobody else knows, not because of your performance, but because of somebody else that performed on your behalf. Jesus is victorious every single time. We never have to wonder if Jesus is going to get a gold medal. He's already secured the victory, and because of that, you and I get to be given a white stone with a new name written on it that is going to be our entrance into heaven. I can't wait to see what my new name is going to be. It's going to be something manly like Thor. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm going to get some kind of new name, and I'm going to get to go be with Jesus forever. New Covenant Church, we face the same commendations, we face the same criticisms, the same challenges, and the same counsel as the church in Pergamum. We also face the same decision. Will we heed those commendations? Will we heed those criticisms, those challenges in that counsel? Or will we turn a blind eye to it? Again, I'm encouraged. I'm excited about where we're at as a church body. I'm excited about this leadership. I'm excited about the, the body as a whole. I'm excited about the men and women that seem to just be in love with Jesus that are sitting in this building that can't wait to see him honored and glorified. I am so thankful for men and women that are sitting in this building that are saying, no matter what comes our way, I stand for Jesus. No matter what comes our way, I want to be like Antipas. If you want to put me in a brazen bowl and light it on fire, go for it, but I'm going to follow Jesus because I can't wait for someday to arrive in heaven and have that new name written on a white stone to someday enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb and get to experience eating what that hidden manna would have been like. That's going to be exciting. I can't wait. What is that meal going to be like where we get to sit down with Jesus and we get to, to experience what it's like to, to have that marriage supper of the Lamb where we have intimate fellowship with Him? I'm going to give you the answer to that in like seven short months when we make it to Revelation 19. So just hang in there. Until then, let's continue to serve and honor and praise the Lord Jesus. And why? Because He's worth it. Why did Antipas allow himself to get put inside of a hollowed-out brazen bowl and burned to death? Because Jesus is worth it. Why are some of us willing to walk out of this building and potentially lose jobs, potentially lose finances, potentially lose friends or followers on Instagram or Facebook? Because Jesus is worth it. Do we believe that, church? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for the fact that regardless of what happens around us, regardless of evil that may run rampant, regardless of uh, direction that even uh, other churches or denominations may go, that Lord Jesus, standing for you is, is completely worth it. Lord, we so look forward to the day where we get to experience the marriage supper of the Lamb and that you are going to invite us in 
and you are going to give us that stone with a new name written on it that nobody knows but you and us. And Lord, we're being given that not because of anything that we've done. In fact, it's in spite of what we've done. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you pursue us when we didn't deserve to be pursued. We're thankful that you love us when we deserved to be hated. And Lord, we are so thankful that you were willing to die for us when we were the ones that should have died. And we're thankful that you rose again, giving us hope that the grave is not the end. Lord, thank you for that great promise that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but we only get to be present with you because of your perfection and what you've done on our behalf. Lord Jesus, may we bring you the honor and the glory and the worship that you deserve, not only this morning, but for whatever days that you give us in this life here on earth and in, into all of eternity. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week.